this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. This is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 3 and the 65th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. To kick off Season 3, I have a super special guest. Over the course of his 35-year career in public safety, Mark Houston has worked as a Chief Ranger, a Flight Paramedic, a Federal and State Law Enforcement Officer, a Firefighter, a ski patroller, a wilderness guide, educator, and a pilot. The bulk of his career was spent leading emergency and search and rescue operations with the US National Parks. I have seen Mark in action alongside Todd Conklin, Bob Edwards, and Andrea Baker. Mark engages workers and managers with dramatic stories from his world of high hazard work. Participants come away with a new appreciation for the complexities their workers face every day. But more importantly, they come away with a new vocabulary and fresh insights relevant to making their own world safer, more productive and so much better. Please sit back and enjoy this two-part conversation with Mark Easton as we talk about learning from everyday work. One interesting thing, well, among the many interesting things that happen, you know, a lot of the safety professionals that I work with over here in the U.S. that have, uh, you know, very active programs in the field, you know, doing whatever auditing and monitoring and stuff like that. Well, when COVID came in and everybody started, a lot of those people just started working from home, so they weren't feet on the ground. So one of the interesting conversations to have with those folks is like, well, what changed in the field? Did your numbers go down? I mean, did you? quit learning about what was going on out there or did the workers for the most part do a really good job and you know bad things really didn't happen like you didn't you didn't see a lot of medical bills or people getting transported off of your works by ambulance and in and, and one industry in particular but I, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, the power industries and I work with a variety of different companies you know in North America that are doing that kind of stuff some of them are just now getting started on changing their thinking toward you know new view and and, and <clears throat> learning teams and and uh, others are you know well along the way and it's been interesting to see the difference you know so with the, the the companies and you know i'm only talking to people who are kind of interested in this stuff in the first place that's the only way they come on my radar um but <clears throat> it's been very interesting so the people who were uh, quite young on the journey uh were very fearful you know, like without us there in the field every day, without us knowing that we could show up at any time with a clipboard and do an audit and find out that you didn't write down the number for the local hospital on your pre-job or something like that, you know, things are going to go off the rails and it's going to be terrible. And then to the more mature organizations, they saw it as an opportunity. They saw it as like, you know, how much uh, efficacy is there with being very, very hands-on in the field from a compliance role. You know, so if we're not there to enforce the rules, are they going to break the rules? And not surprisingly, what they found out is that, they, that their employees didn't suddenly start breaking the rules. And by and when I say rules, I talk about the good rules, 
of which there are many, that have a very high fidelity between why the rule exists or the procedure exists and how that leads to successful and safe work. Workers don't need to be audited on that stuff. They don't need to, that doesn't need to be enforced too much. It can be merely observed because there's a very high fidelity. They're like, if I do, if I take the guard off of this piece of equipment and I don't ground this, I may not go home today. So I'm not going to do those things. But the other really interesting thing, this example of some discussions with some of these companies was, you know, we always talk about the notion of uh, our procedures and our procedures are, they're written for clarity. They are written to be understandable and implementable. And if you, uh, you know, whenever we have an event, we're always like, do we have a procedure for that? Well, yes, we do. Well, where are they following the procedure? And then we pull it out of the notebook and we're like, well, this is pretty straightforward. We've had a lot of smart of people course. work very hard yeah. to make sure this was done. And we gave it colors and we gave it right. pictures. And I think, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a greater appreciation to some of these organizations that they, it was kind of an eye opener for them to realize in, in this context that our workers are never running a single, you know, crystalline procedure we're running multiple procedures yeah, so it's not you know, linear yeah and and the, and, the, and the most recurrent example of that was um i started seeing and started getting calls from companies who are like man we're having a lot of line of fire incidents you know we're having you know hand injuries and face injuries and flash burns and things like that and uh it's because our workers are not you know they're not taking the precautions that they used to take and then when we actually dive into it and talk to the workers and do some learning on it we find out it's like okay well you know i'm not supposed to engage this work unless i have a, an apprentice or assistant on either side of me holding the tension out of that equipment while i do the delicate work but also they can't be within six feet of me and we're all driving to our job in separate vehicles because we have these COVID standards and so we tell the workers you know <clears throat> keep your hands out of the line of fire make sure you have all the people you know you have a spotter back here you've got somebody walking up you got somebody holding the tension off the line but also make sure that you're not within six feet of each other and everybody's masked up and your goggles are fogging and stuff like that and so our simple procedures which seem perfectly implementable and they come from a kind place are often just impossible for people to implement yes. yeah and, and they're creating conflict and, and there's the bizarre one you guys use six feet we use two meters okay right which I understand a little bit about them. So just swear me up here. So two meters, that's like a dollar eighty-five Canadian. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's yeah. it's, okay. it's one it's one right. it's it's basically um, one point no, eight. <laughs> it's one point eight feet. I don't know so why we never come into it. But so what I love about it is, can COVID judge distance? I don't know. Well. Um, clearly, with your success down there, they, they're, they're, the virus is absolutely on the metric system. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've always been a fan of base 10, not base 12. So maybe that should right. be our solution. Yeah, there, 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 there we go. But look, uh, I, I've always found it interesting, Mark, because, you know, when I, because I come from a risk management background, and, and I say to people that, you know, that the purpose of risk management is to um, introduce certainty. By, by bringing in defences or mitigations or controls to introduce certainty. Right. Um, Some level of certainty you're talking about. Yeah. Not the level of certainty that no one's going to make a mistake, nothing's going to go wrong. No, you're no, but, but in terms of, and, and whether that is trying to physically manage the hazard or whether it's mm -hmm. trying to influence the person, it all becomes a little bit more uncertain. But, but the purpose of these things is to bring certainty into the equation. But, but there's always some risk left over. And I always find it fascinating that when companies show me a risk register 
which basically says, look, we've, we've reduced risk, but the consequence is still death. I'm saying, so you, then you're taking that and you're handing it over to workers and you're saying, we can't do any about, we can't, we can't solve the shit any further. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Mines Trust have come up with the best solution and whatever risk is left over, we're now going to pass over to you and you guys are going to magically solve it. Magically. Yeah, and I think and one of the examples I like to use there because we think we're providing, we, we always do, and I think that's just kind of the nature of work too. We can prescribe and design and train and hire people with expertise and talent and then there's that cliff edge where they're going to have to go and negotiate. And I think sometimes in the aftermath of an incident, and unfortunately I a lot of times end up in the places after some sort of catastrophe, um, as they're standing there in the rubble, you know, the organization is saying, like, we worked so hard to get, you know, to get this information out. We worked, you know, we worked so hard to get them to do this kind of stuff. And then you have the conversation about, like, we, we can never provide 100% safety because in, in 100% safety, nothing gets done. Nobody drives a car, nobody gets out of a chair, nobody operates a, a, you know, a mouse on a desk that isn't ergonomically designed. You know, we, we, we move people around in like pressurized tubes and bean bags, but nothing gets done. And then when we look, it's, it's easy to kind of talk to people about this when you talk about our engineered environments where people work. You know, and so I, I was on a, I was actually on a ship, on a vessel, when an incident happened. I was doing training, and the incident was basically like this. One of our best guys, engineer, kind of at the end of his 12-hour watch, had to go down into the motor room to do some final checks on some stuff before his watch ended, and then he would get his rest and then come back the next day. And you can picture this. It's like an industrial, well, it's a, it's a ship, you know, so it's got, it's got ladders, but they're not really ladders, but they're so they're too steep to be stairs, but they're not steep enough to be ladders, and and they've got really good rules about how to use them. You know, you can't have anything in your hands, and you have to unchain the platform, and then you have to face inward, and you have to have your hands on the thing. Well, the injury was uh, the guy lost his balance while going down and blew his shoulder out. And of course, the in, the inclination was was he following our procedure? Because they've got pictures of the procedures, like they have a little diagram of how to hold and all that stuff. Well, because this was a a newer ship, um, I don't know if you've been on a brand new ship before, but it's kind of like it's like new car smell, but way more expensive. And like anything that's newly manufactured, these there's cameras everywhere. And it was really interesting because we were, you know, the, the normal thing was happening. Like, oh, Joe's hurt. It seems bad. You know, his shoulder is kind of messed up. He's thinking he'll be okay in a couple of days, but I mean, it just doesn't seem really good. It's like, well, what happened? Well, he he, you know, was heading down the stairs into the motor room and you know tripped and you know, blew up his shoulder. Well, was he uh, following the procedure? I mean, were, were, did he have stuff in his hands? Was he rushing? Because we've had problems with some of the hot shots around here, like sliding down the handrails and you know zipping around. But because there were cameras everywhere, they were actually able to pull up the incident. It was amazing, <clears throat> right? So there's a surveillance camera in the motor room monitoring all the things in the motor room. And I have to tell you that if they were to hire professional actors to demonstrate, here is how our organization uses these stairways, they could have just used this video. The guy gets to the top of the stairs, he's got his clipboard in his hand, he puts the clipboard and the little dumb waiter sends it down. He's got both of his hands free, looks down at his feet, unhooks the chain, turns around onto the platform, rehooks the chain, looks at the signs, puts his hands firmly on either side of the handrails and starts down. And now on the third step down, his left foot gets kind of caught 
and he starts to go. And he starts to go to what's probably going to be a death fall, you know, 15 feet down to like a solid steel grate. You know, that's a bad, bad injury. But he grabbed onto the handrail. And the, and the energy of his fall was transferred to the energy which injured his shoulder, which is exactly the amount of safety that we provide in that system. The handrail, our system worked perfectly. Yes, his shoulder is hurt, but he's not dead because we, in our design, accept that level of risk. And so... But we don't want to celebrate it. Right. We don't celebrate it. We think like, well, you know, so we're going to tell everybody. Well, and actually, in this case, they did. They said, you know, is this an adequate amount of protection that we provide our workers? You know, because the assumption is that if you go up and down ladders or if you walk across the street, sometimes you're just going to tip over and lose your balance. It's yeah. going to happen. Right? Uh, uh, when that happens, we're going to minimize the consequence. Now, to the alternative, we could make that 100% safe. And we could take that worker and put him in a harness and have him hook up and gently lower him, like I said, onto a you know a bunch of cotton balls or a beanbag chair, mm-hmm. and we would eliminate that hazard, but we would go broke and crazy doing that, wow. so we don't do but, but I think what fascinates me, Mark, and, and, and the reason, like, some of the work that you're doing, which I'm, which I'm very proud of, because you're, you're, you're really at that front line, and, and you know, um, I think next year is going to become the year of learning from everyday work. I hope so. I, I, I really do. And, and, you know, we've been trying to push the boundaries um, a lot um, but by trying to sh- give people better insights if that makes sense. And, and I think the work yes. that, that people like um, uh, Eric Honagel doing is, is really valuable. But ultimately, people don't want to know about the what and the why. Mm-hmm. They need to know about the how and the when. Right. And, 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 and there's no real impetus to look at things when they're going well. You know, Correct. As, because Holnagel says, like, what's happening when nothing's happening? And I, t- I have to tell you, tragically, and I have to restrain myself and, and recognize my bias, but when I get called or engaged by a company that has some sort of, you know, catastrophe or horrible event, and uh, and, and the people I'm talking to, they're, I mean, they're always, like, taken aback, and they're hurting because, you know, yeah. these horrible things happen. And, uh, and, and I'll ask them to give me the thumbnail, you know, as I'm packing my bags to go there, and it's always like, you know, these guys were reliable. You know, the men and women on this job were fantastic. Our numbers were fantastic. Our productivity was outstanding. Mm-hmm. We just need to know what went crazy on this day so that we can prevent that from happening. And I have to withhold myself because I want to go out there and factually learn sure. about what happened. But pretty much 100% of the time, or very high, that day that the horrible thing happened, that day that the catastrophe came that totally destroyed their operations and ruined people's lives, looked exactly like the days of successful work before then. Correct. Yep. It wasn't that people came in and all of a sudden, like, let's try this a crazy different way. That mm-hmm. very rarely happens. And what you find is, and it's, it amazes me still, I mean, like, you know, one falling incident that I was involved in without getting into too much detail, um, everybody had actually been trained in their apprenticeships to do exactly what they were doing. And only in the aftermath were they like, well, we never intended that to be the case. How did this how did this come in as a as a journeyman level practice with these people when we never actually prescribed it in curriculum or anything? Yeah. Got a piece of equipment, learned how to use it, and applied that piece of equipment successfully for decades. Yeah. I mean, people who had grand, grandparents in the industry thought, like, this is how we do this thing, and it worked all the time until it didn't. And because we weren't there trying to detect and asking that question, you know, when that thing actually fails, which they never do, but when it happens, what's going to keep us safe and keep yeah. us all from just flying to the ground 
then we can have a conversation saying, you know, really, we don't have any protection there. And those things are just living in the work all the time. Yeah, and and I, and I think the, the challenge that we have um, and some of the stuff that we're working at the moment on is how to get people to share that story, share that narrative without it becoming filtered. Because, you right. know, an observation is filtered. It's, it's not using the language of the person. It's using the language of the person who's observing it. And they're going to filter yep. it because, as you said, um, I got accused the other day of being biased. And, and I'm saying everyone is biased. Sure. You, you can't put a bias aside. No, you just have to recognize it and try your best to manage yeah, it. But we are biased. Um, yes. So when people do observations, they are biased. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, just, I mean, that's, just, that's the human condition. That's not. It's not like a bad choice to become biased. It's like that we are, we arrive on this day, being influenced by everything that brought us to this day. Yeah. So, so just as we should uh, embrace human error, we should also embrace our biases. Right, and acknowledge them up front. Yeah. And then and then look for where that leaves us weak to truly understanding Correct. what's going on. Or well, the other crazy yeah. thing I, I is sometimes biases, you know, help us. So, I mean, well, I think but, they're... But they drive our appetite for risk. They drive lots of things because mm-hmm. that's our perception, our view. Just as organizations keep wanting to... They want all the people on the same page of the book. I said, well, right. what page is that? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. um, that, that can't happen. Because we're all driven as individuals. We all have different experiences. We've all come from different places. I, I said, you know, what's important, um, and, and I go back to, say, Dr. Deming's work. He's basically saying, how can we create conversations that allows people to self-improve? Right. And then how does the system learn from that? Because because I think, you know, we, we keep going back to it. We believe that, that the system we create, we have to keep adjusting people to fit the system. Um, and, and there's an interesting argument between resilience. Um, you know, the system has some resilience. The work mm-hmm. team has some resilience. The individuals have some resilience. But how does the system find the opportunity to learn? Because well, the system can't be resilient without learning. It's a good place to look at. It. It's a good way to look at how we go in and treat the system. So we can say, like we want to have better conversations. We want to have more operational intelligence. We want to know what's going on. We want to engage the employees in this, mm-hmm. but our knee jerk is to come into what I would already call a pretty heavily bureaucratized space and impose more stuff. You know, yeah, add more interventions. More pages or 10 more lines to the pre-job thing. Yep. And where I've seen people having great success with this is they take a very, very hard look at this. So they recognize that we have these two kinds of time that workers have. They have time to to look at the work and plan for it, and then they have time to engage in it. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps they have time to evaluate what just happened. Yep, and a reflection, but, yep. But we're there to get a job done. So the overwhelming bulk of that time is the hands on the work. Mm-hmm. And so if we recognize that we've got like really precious space before the work begins, where workers can have organic conversations about what they're going to do, about what capacities they have in place, about what hazards and difficulties they're going to have to manage you know, in the work of the day. The more that turns into a pencil whip and fill out this form because somebody may show up in a white car with a helmet on and make sure that I signed it, um, we're actually taking away from that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then on the other end, when the work is done, even on a successful day's work, 
um, allowing or creating some time to have a quick conversation about how those things go. So, and I, and I talk to organizations like, we don't have time to do that. You know, we, we can't impose this on anybody else. It's how do you make time to do these kinds of briefings? And I said, well, first off, concentrate on the word briefing. You know, what you're doing is structuring a conversation. Now, you may bureaucratically have to, like, document something. That's fine. Just don't overwhelm it. But the, the essence is keep it brief. So in emergency services, you know, every time, you know, I mean, someone's dying and we have to get there as quickly as possible. And we're all yeah. climbing into a helicopter to go do it. And we have a minimal amount of information. We might just sometimes yeah. have a location in the middle of nowhere that we're going to because someone's in trouble. <clears throat> and yet we would take the time to brief. Yes. We would take the time you know, but we would do it briefly and we would do it very efficiently. Mm -hmm. And then we would go out and do the thing, whatever that thing was. And then we would come yeah. back and we knew that we were coming back either better or worse off than when we left. Yeah. And so we actually carried these on laminated cards that we'd all memorized. But when we got back from every single mission, we would also take, again, a brief period of time to say, how did that go? What did we think we were going to go up and encounter mm -hmm. out there? What did we actually encounter? Where did we struggle? What did we learn? What do we need to share? These are very brief and concise conversations, but if you're not having them, you're not digging any of that stuff up. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if we go back to what Deming talked about, it's that whole PDCA. Um, right. And it was interesting, his thing got taken out of context because he originally came up with something called PDSA, um, which was okay. Plan, Do, Study, and right. Apply. So he said, you have to understand why it's functioning. Absolutely. And then, and then apply those learnings back into the system for the yeah. system to learn yeah and that's what we're always doing so always looking at the post job even if successful work you're always must you're, I absolutely want, i want to say always, but you're often going to find things that you can put back into the front end of the system correct and you know so people talk about like safety culture or you know and i think it was just it's just job culture it's like what are we here to do and how are we going to get home in one piece any, any operational intelligence that the workers develop that they can put back into the front end and, a, and an organization that's curious enough to try to be capturing and supporting that kind of stuff, that's that's how, I don't care what we're doing, uh, that's how human beings get better at what we do. I don't care if, yeah. you're, if, you're, if you're editing the first draft of a book you've written, you know, your, your goal is to continue to take the product and to look at it in a critical way, in a yeah. constructive way, and then put in the improvements ongoing. And so, so the stuff that we've been exploring is how do we get the system? So, so from our point of view, learning has to happen. So workers need to learn, okay? Um, and the organization needs to learn because the organization can affect the system. Right. Workers are having to deal with the uncertainty, the stuff that's left over. So how do we create those learning opportunities? Um, but, but more importantly, as you have to find that there has to be space. As you said, there has to be time to learn. Yes. And what we've been exploring is that most systems are asking workers to evaluate or assess. And we're saying, how can we create a conversation that allows a worker to critically appraise the system, not evaluate or assess? And how do we incentivize them wanting to tell us where our systems are not so great? Well, I mean, so 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 we use it. We use the we call this language called make do. Mm -hmm. So so because that's because every day you're making do. Absolutely. I, I mean, I wish my life was that well structured that I could just float along and 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 as Todd would say, see unicorns at the end. Um, right. <laughs> but that's not how it happens. So we're constantly no. having to make do. 
what we've been trying to think about is um, as humans if we don't use these skills of critical appraising and critical thinking we lose those skills over time sure become robots yeah yeah and so how does this how does the system support people to to critically think and critically appraise and i would say also to critically communicate so i think then we yeah. have to look at our incentives that we that we put out there in traditional safety where we go out in a very kind way and we try to find good behaviors and reward them sometimes you know yeah. like many organizations have these 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 situations where you know if you catch one of your coworkers doing something right or being compliant or being extra safe whatever you can reward them like hey here's a gift card or you can put them in for a reward and then of course once you've caught once you've caught me using a ladder right you know all of mm-hmm. a sudden you know i've got to catch you backing up a truck right so that you can yeah. also get your thermos free thermos yeah. And, and I was, when I was with the National Park Service, we had that whole kind of incentive thing, like catch each other doing stuff right. And it was great. It was nice. But at a certain point, are you really getting a lot of milk out of it? And I was kind of frustrated. And I was toward the end of my career, so I could take some risks. And, and I ended up kind of flipping that on my head. And I was in a big meeting with, uh, you know, all the different divisions of the park. And they were talking about, you know, well, do we give away, you know, uh, like coupons to go to a free movie? Or do we give away refrigerator magnets or whatever cheap? you know, chattel we could give to each other as a government employee. And uh, I got kind of frustrated and I, and I said, you know, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to take money out of my own budget. And I don't care which other division you happen to work in this park. I said, but I'm going to give a thousand dollar award to whichever employee comes to us and tells us a story about something that we don't know about, but we should know about something that went wrong. And I'm going to call it the award for the biggest screw up of the year, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest screw up that nobody heard of. And people thought this was insane. And I got some pushback from some of my peers. They're like, well, you know, now people, you just incentivize people going out there and doing dangerous things on purpose so they can report themselves and then get $1,000. And I don't really think that's the way our workers work. Oh, what we ended up getting <laughs> was uh, amazing uh, stories. The award winner was actually like a young seasonal ranger who came to us with a story. It was like, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning. It's dark outside. It's 20 degrees below zero, you know, which is like $8 Canadian and, you know, very, very cold. And he's out there in the darkness and he's trying to match a truck and a towing hitch and a trailer with snowmobiles in it to tow it to this other location about 50 miles away down a lonely highway in a snowstorm. And, uh, and about halfway into the journey, he's coming around the curb and uh, his trailer passes him on the left. He thinks it's a drunk driver and they recognize, oh, that's my trailer, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, chains sparking and stuff like that because the entire receiver had, you know, come oh, off yeah. the truck. And, and fortunately, the thing just kind of like went over into the gravel on the side of the road, came to a stop, no damage, no harm, no foul. He hooked it all back up and thought, okay, thank God nobody yeah. saw that. A, grace, a graceful event. Right, a graceful <laughs> event, but nobody ever would have known about it except you started thinking like, oh, they seem to want to hear about these things. And it was great because when he came to us with that, we're like, this is a fantastic story. How do we fix this? We go to the chief of maintenance. He says, you know, they shouldn't get this wrong. I've got a notebook in my office that shows which truck goes with which hitch, goes with which trailer. And if you follow the directions, you're not going to have any problem. Well, it's nighttime mm-hmm. and the office is locked and mm-hmm. nobody even knew this notebook existed. And, you know, to the uninitiated, it's like any truck goes with any trailer, any hitch, which we know not to be the case. 
So we decided to just make it systemically really hard to mess that up. And we just color coded everything, sure. you know, with little dots of spray paint, you know? So if you've got a blue dot on the hitch, then that's and a blue dot on the receiver and a blue dot on the trailer, all of those connect together. If you've got an orange one or a red one in there, something's wrong and you need to, yeah. you know, not hook it up and come get help. Yeah. And for a thousand bucks, we put in, you know, a, a, an intervention into the entire fleet and we rewarded people for coming to us with stuff we otherwise wouldn't hear yeah and the stuff and then we and then we tried to demonstrate like you know we know stuff is going on out there and you see that you just told us this and here's the product of that intelligence we've, we've made the world safer and better for all of us by making these changes in this case like a couple scans cans of spray paint and when you do that you're incentivizing other people to come forward and talk about these things with an eye toward all of us being on the same page trying to improve and get yeah, because we're empowering people to problem solve the bit of risk that the organization says I can't fix right. because the organization had a thought about it or applied itself I mean as mm -hmm. you know foresight's always going to be difficult <laughs> yes but but the reality is you know why do we engineer different sizes of balls I mean why why can't we standardize Right, why can't everything just be one? Yeah, could, that was my first question. <laughs> like, well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, if we're in Germany, it would be. Um. Right. <laughs> but we had the discussion as I, I, I dimmed the lights in a room and I just passed the hitches around because I had some people resisting. Mm -hmm. I said, tell me the difference by feel with your gloves on, the difference between one and seven eighths and two inches. Well, it's printed right on here. I said, well, it's not printed right on here after it's towed for 10,000 miles. Correct. It's gone. Yeah. 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 You imagine coming here when it's in both metric or inches. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Or, or or the rental gear that you have. <laughs> that right. you, right, be the same standard. And, and I think mm. that you know, part, part of it is that uh, ultimately, if, if we want people to be successful, we need to move away from the intervention approach. Because I don't, I don't have a problem, like for me, a learning team is still a form of intervention. It's a no, soft intervention, well, it's but, yeah. but it's an intervention, okay? Mm -hmm. Because workers haven't said, oh, you know, run a learning team today. I'd love for you to run a learning team. It's the organisation that's deciding we want to run a learning team. We want to be curious. It's, I call it a soft intervention versus an right. investigation where, you know, let's all come in, you know, and we'll stomp in. Um, but, but ultimately, how do we then have that richer conversation? How do we allow workers to lead those conversations and how can the organization support them? Well, I think some places where, where they have done this well and where the communication back out to the workers with yep. the results of learning events, learning teams and stuff like that, um, seen some pretty remarkable. Got a call back from one of the companies that I've, that I've done some work with that, that has been well at this for some time now. And, uh, one of their safety pros was kind of going through their work area, you know, at the beginning or end of shift, I can't remember, and saw like, you know, a cadre of the workers and they're sitting there at the back of their truck and they've got a dry erase marker mm -hmm. and they're actually marking up like the interior cabinet of one of the trucks as they're having this conversation. And he comes up, he's like, what, what are you guys doing? What's this about? And they says, oh, we're just doing a blue line review. Mm -hmm. 
So what's a blue line review? And it was something that they had invented because they could, because workers understand the concept of work is prescribed black line, yeah. work is performed blue line. And that was having their conversation. You can call it pre-job, post-job, whatever. But they were talking about those differences between the work is imagined and the work is actually done and where they needed to you know, get better or where they needed some assistance or where they needed yeah. some clarification. And they were doing that organically. So that's what I love to see. And I think that the, those workers would not have gotten to that place where they would have had such ownership in that concept, even though it's a pretty natural concept for a worker or anybody to adopt, is because of the way their organization was using their learning and then coming back out and communicating wildly, widely with the field and saying, we had this thing happen, here's what we know about it, and here's what we've done to get better. Yeah. And, and, we, we, so and, we, and, and we could not have done it without you. Yeah. Which is so, so we we talk about how how can we how can we create how can the system help to build a cultural practice of learning. So, not a culture of learning, but a cultural right. practice. That, I think that, some of that at the organization level, I think some of that starts with um, a, a self examination mm-hmm. and and really some uh, curiosity paired with humility. Yep. Are two great strengths, and you know, one organization I work with, as they went through and they like really debureaucratized their pre-job work instruments, which had gone from 11 pages to just one page, like the essentials, and then you know, really just a conversation starter. Um, <clears throat> they had, uh, I just lost my train of thought, of course. Um, <clears throat> they had a preamble on that form. So when they when they reengineered it with the feedback of the workers mm-hmm. to try to you know deep you know strip things back down because there'd been like 20 years worth of stuff that just got added into this and it was really just a pencil whip to the workers and they would tell you um, when they came out with it, working collaboratively with the workers like what do we really need to do to get the job done and stay safe and they came up with a much more concise thing with some space built in to have conversation and the cool thing they did was they put a little preamble on they said mm-hmm. you know we at you know blank corp believe that we have given you the resources to do your job we've hired you know the right people you know we're trained to a standard and we've given you the correct tools and procedures now the only people who can tell us how good our plans and our tooling is are you so talk to us let us know and so expressing simultaneously humility like we don't have Mm -hmm. it you know, our procedures may not be 100% workable and perfect for you and two we need to hear from you was, was a great imitation and then some of these people, of course, you just can't shut them up. <laughs> of course, but but the right. problem is, as soon as someone sees that in the organisation, then they automatically want to systemise it. Right. And then they want to turn it into a tool. Yeah, of course. Um, and then we need to, you know, we need to measure it. You know, yeah, and, 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 and once again, I I, I don't uh, um, I think in our latest white paper we talked about, you know, it's natural for us to want to measure activity, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because that provides information, but the problem is without the narrative, it has no meaning. It's just a piece of right. data. It's just a, it's a data point. It's and a, I, yeah. And, or, yeah, and I, I was at a I was at one of the very few recent live um, engagements that I did, and I had a keynote with an organization and a, a very charming and, and sincere uh, gentleman from their company who came on before me to show the leadership, you know. Um, what they were tracking with their system and even very proudly he said you know and i can tell you that the most dangerous time in our workplace is um wednesdays after 4 p.m wow as though that's some kind of fantastic piece of information wow. so if you're measuring everything 
there is going to be a certain discernible time on average that's sure. the most dangerous part of the day. Now, does that mean anything? I don't know. And it I could, felt it could bad be. for the guy because I got up and started to speak and the, and the CEO kind of interrupted me. He says, what do you think about this Wednesday thing? And I didn't want to embarrass the poor guy. And so I simply said, I'm on record as being totally against Wednesdays no matter what. I think we need two Fridays, get rid of Wednesday yeah. and we'll be fine, you know, and then yeah. move on. But what we were saying is, is like we will get information of what we're looking at. And if we're, if we're looking at data that's garbage, you know, and data that I, I think the best information doesn't come to us as a data point necessarily it comes to us in the form of a story. Absolutely. So I mean, that, being it, talking to us about something that actually happened, that can be really data rich. That's the kind of information well, we need. Here's a shocking prediction. Accidents only happen on days ending in Y. Right. <laughs> so if we eliminate so, all days ending in Y, we'll right. eliminate all accidents. <laughs> Right. So. <laughs> but but I, but I think and what, one of the things that we explored, Mark, was this difference between what we call an informational metric versus an actionable metric. Right. So so that we want we want information that helps to inform us. Mm-hmm. And the the objective of of that informing us is to help us be curious from an organisational perspective. And then that curiosity can then lead to some form of. Um, of action, and when I say action, I, I really mean there by by looking at all the narrative, the stories sit below it, right. or by running a learning team, or by you know whatever other form of engagement that we want to do. But it's about what one must lead to the other, and and it's linking that that quantitative and that qualitative component. What what we've been experimenting with, which is really fascinating, is. We're using some AI technology that is taking the narrative from the worker and then linking emotional sentiment to their words. Because, and that emotional sentiment is at the moment expressed as either being negative, neutral, or positive. Which is very simple, simplistic. Yep, very, very simple. But what it's doing is it's, it's telling us about their capacity to cope. Right. And so we, we had this recent example where where on the dashboard the word masks kept kept appearing. Now that should not come as a surprise in a pandemic. Right. Okay? Because the word masks is being used by the work groups. But what was surprising is that eighty percent of the use of the word mask was a negative sentiment. Did they get to a sign? Like, so they give that feedback somehow, you know. Yeah, so, so and, as they share their stories, so as they share right, their okay. stories, right? The, the AI tool was looking at the entire story mm-hmm. and it's saying, what is, what is the sentiment of what they're saying? So when they then clicked on the word mask, they then saw all the stories that sat below it. Okay. And sure enough, in there were stories like a contract group turned up today with racial slogans on their masks. Contractors aren't wearing masks. When I engage with them, I get told to, you know, go away. Right. When I report the lack of mask wearing to my supervisor, he tells me to mind my own business. So none of those things you mentioned are anything really against the mask. They're about the situations in which the masks are being used or not used. Correct, because because the language the worker is using, the AI has said that they're not coping. Now. Could you imagine, so those, we call those things there with the weak signals. 
Right. What could that have then resulted in? If that had have gone unchecked, because the organisation would have had no visibility, that would then end up with some form of event. We have a work, we have a work source, uh, uh, we have a workplace that's 98% anti-mask. That's what you would come up if you didn't look deeper. Yeah, or there's a punch up, there's a punch up with a bunch of workers over right. mask wearing. Or, or, God help us, someone brings a firearm into the workplace. Right. Because, you know, the emotions are, are high. Does it make sort of sense? Because, because it's not why they're high, why the high is not relevant, it's how mm -hmm. people feel. Yes. And and if if that sentiment is trending negative, just as much of it's trending positive, yes. then if it's trending positive, what's their magic what's their secret source? What's their magic? Okay. Why right. why, why why do they have that capacity to cope? So you're taking you're telling me you have AI making these assessments, giving you some raw material, you know, raw data. Yep. And, and the only way to clarify it is to be curious, go out and talk to people. Yeah, yeah, correct. So why not just go out and talk to people? Well, this is the catch because organizations can't be everywhere every time. Right. So even, even those people that have gone down the hop learning teams process, um, the fact is they still, they still have a finite amount of resource. Right. You could go out and run a learning team and you always learn. That's the best thing about a learning team. You can always learn. Sure. Um, but there's still a finite resource. It's no different, like like people say to us, you know, we want we want people to report more things. And, and I ask the question, um, how do you evaluate these reports? How much time, how much time do you allocate to each report? Right. So how many reports could you actually receive before you no longer have the resource to evaluate those reports? So we have qualitatively, you know, correct because we have a finite triage the ones that are actionable and useful. Yeah. Right? And, and what Eric's saying is that if you want to see frequencies of similarity, you have to look out. You have to look out to everyday work. Mm -hmm. What we're exploring is how do we do that in such a way that isn't based on an intervention, but allows the organisation to start to see weak signals. So try and take all the noise out. Right. Um, and, and, and that was a classic example where where um, <coughs> you, you could have gone out and spoke to lots of workers and you and you might have seen little bits of that appearing. Mm -hmm. But then the person doing that is going to be very filtered. They're going to have their bias as to whether that's relevant or not. Sure. What the system was basically saying is that these these are the the word trends that are coming from these conversations, and the, this is the emotional sentiment coming from that same conversation. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. 
go to www.learningteamscommunity.com, support the authors of The Practice of Learning Teams, purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.